This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. Today, Ryan and I had the pleasure of talking with Erwin LaCour. Erwin is the founder of Breath Hold Work and Move Nat, which is all about natural movement. He's really big and very passionate about movement in nature, being outside, functional fitness. And more recently, he has been in the Breath Hold space setting records and really motivating and training folks to become more resilient across the board. This was a really cool conversation. You're going to enjoy it. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Today, we have Erwin LaCour on the line. Erwin, how's it going? Oh, I'm I'm good. I'm sitting outside and all is good. It's a beautiful day. I think this is might be our first podcast where all of us are outside, so it's a this is great. Practice what we preach. Ryan, yeah. how's it going? It's good, man. The weather's nice. Not a lot of wind, so I'm ready to, ready for a solid rip. So Erwin is, you know, we, we connected actually just a couple weeks ago in Santa Fe and did some breath holding, which was awesome. So we, uh, I got kind of a, a little dive into that world, and we'll have to talk a lot about that, but... <laughs> I think your your backstory is also really fascinating as well. Um, the whole you know move nat move naturally uh, thing you're you're kind of big on for it seemed like that was a good chunk of uh, what you're doing. Um, you know in the late you know in the 2010 era and um, but even your childhood it seemed like and into the young adult years you're really just into a lot of different movement practices, different, you know, athletic practices. So yeah, I guess take us through, was that mindset always there from childhood? Just like doing a bunch of different things to stay active, stay outdoors and and stay moving. It completely was, it completely was a mindset already from early on. It was, I mean, ranging from my dad having me climb trees or scale rocks we had uh, i grew up in a, in a little place outside of uh, outside of paris maybe, I don't know, 30 miles away from paris and right outside the the door we had woods and in those woods we had those huge rocks like boulders and so we were climbing those boulders and jumping from one to another so you know there was no i mean there was tv it was black and white no remote control about zero entertainment for kids. I mean, not a lot of that as certain, on certain days or as certain hours. So we were not only allowed to be outside, we were asked to be outside, not to stay inside the house. Um, so, and, and then it, it was a mentality because I remember climbing things and hanging from things and somehow testing my ability to stay calm and, I was, it was very explorative and it was all natural movement right there. Crawling, climbing, balancing, jumping, all these things. Yeah, that, that's the early part. Yeah, that's that's the way to live. And I think, you know, you're raising your children now, your son's like that. And yeah. I want to get into that exactly, how that's so different and valuable. 
But yeah, so how did you kind of progress that into the adult stages of your of your life and, you know, trying more, you know, strenuous disciplines? And was that something you just really dove into or what was kind of the first, you know, really disciplined practice that, that got you hooked? We, as kids, we played, uh, you know, I played soccer, but like not formally uh, tennis, not formally. It was just you know, like finding an old racket and an old tennis ball. And, you know, a lot of, of a big variety of, of movements, not just natural movement, also some, some sports. And um, so I did some judo as a kid, a bit of swimming. It's, it's when I became a teenager that I realized, all right, I'm going to become an adult <clears throat> and I need, I had that instinct of forming myself into an adult that I could be proud of an adult that would have inner strength, that would have capability in the, in the physical plane and also the mental side of things. Anyway, so martial arts obviously became a big draw. Um, and uh, started karate, and I really got into that. Karate taught me a lot. Um, I was actually very good at it. Um, I became um, a champion, and it taught me the the value of repetition, of discipline, of being very technical, very mindful about every little detail of how you move. And, and this uh, I applied later on in my practice of natural movement, and then it became MoveNet. Um, and then, so that was from 15 to 18 years old, almost 19. Then I met a very strange character that was much older. He became a bit of a mentor, of a guru to me, um, and a bunch of a few other misfits and mavericks. And we would do absolutely crazy things in Paris. And when I say crazy things, uh, imagine scaling uh, Notre Dame or sneaking in the Louvre, um, you know, the, the museum, doing things like that, uh, jumping off from underneath uh, bridges, in the Seine, the, the, the Seine, the, the, it's the French river, the river in Paris. Uh, but we've, we've had a wetsuit at night in the, in the winter. So you talk about cold plunging. So anything, everything, absolutely everything that is now part of whatever you call that, natural movement, rewilding, biohacking, through that mentor I was doing back then from 19 to 26, so seven years. So I'm talking about barefoot training. I'm talking about breath work that was systematic, like breath work every day. Cold plunging, fasting, called now intermittent fasting as if it was supposed to be constant fasting uh, or uh, whatever. <laughs> Obviously, we cannot fast continuously so it has to be intermittent anyways we were fasting we're fasting 24 hours we're fasting 48 hours uh being in the sun being in the wind being in the rain being outside even in paris 
Um, so that would mean it didn't matter that we were running barefoot on concrete or on dirt or on whatever surface. Climbing things to have a horizon and to also test your ability to remain calm and composed because there was no ropes or harnesses and stuff like that. So imagine like, you know, what you call now parkour, we're doing things like that, jumping from roof to roof, things that you make a mistake, you fall, you die. Um, all of that, uh, Thai boxing and some form of, you know, Thai boxing, Krav Maga stuff in the underground of Paris. You name it. I, I could probably write a, a movie about it, write a book about it, about just that era. Those those years were, were crazy. So imagine um, going at night, train all day, I mean all night, um, in a fasted state, in the winter, barefoot, climbing stuff, freezing your arse, being tired, having to control your breath, all kind of things. So the point was, what are you made of? Um, do you have a discipline? Are you self-disciplined? Which was going against the, the grain, against the machine. Like the system wants to make you dumb and numb and inept, lacking capability, lacking enough to make you... I mean, look at all the advertisements and the movies and everything. It make, wants to make you soft. It, there's a whole environment, a whole promotion of everything that makes you obviously to not be the optimum version of who you could be. And this, this mentality was about doing the exact opposite. And you bet that it was only for a handful of people because you had to have that kind of mindset. No, that, all that stuff is actually really, really interesting. Um, and I, I relate to um, part of your story, especially with martial arts. Um, I did a lot of martial arts in my teens, um, early teens through about uh, early high school. And I wish I actually wish I had kept up with some of it. Um, but just some of my passion and drive sort of shifted to other, other facets. But I think the value of discipline, and like you, you mentioned, repetition, uh, is a very valuable, a valuable skill. And you mentioned a lot of things about mindset. Definitely going to be getting into breath work in this one because I find it super fascinating. Tristan was actually sharing with me some of, some of the things you taught him uh, when you guys met up, uh, holding holding breath underwater and stuff like that. And it's there's so much mindset at play for all of these things. I think you mentioned a lot of good things about about society making us soft. I mean, there's this sort of addiction to convenience and, and, and being relaxed. Everyone talks about stress as being bad, but there's so much stress that's actually beneficial. And I think we live in a society, at least in a modern cultural sense, that is devoid of the right kinds of stress. Exactly. And maxed out on the, on the stress that we put on ourselves almost un, unneedingly. And I've definitely been, a, been, uh, been uh, guilty of these things in, in my life. But it's, it goes back to, I think, purpose, discipline, mindset, knowing yourself. And I don't think a lot of people have a lot of those things in, in line. So I'd sort of love to talk to you a little bit about mindset. What do you think it takes to build a strong mind? 
and like develop that d discipline, obviously doing hard things as part of that, I think, but I'd love to sort of, how would you sculpt your, uh, your David sort of in, in that mindset realm? I'd sort of love to know your philosophy and how, how one builds. Very good. All, overall, very, very good point, Ryan. Um, I could go in so many directions just based on what you, you said. Very good. So what would that take to build that mindset of self-discipline? Self-discipline is not a finality. It's, it's a tool. It's what you need to achieve what you want. So, yeah, you could train to become self-disciplined because you need the tool. So then, then you can have self-discipline to go and pursue what your, what your objective is that it is external, achieving something or acquiring something outside of yourself, or, in my opinion, much, much more important, internal, how you want to develop yourself and express yourself, who you want to be. So that's the question, is who do you choose to be? That's where it starts. That's the wisdom there. Learning tools on you know how to be self-disciplined well you could do this you could do that every morning you could do this every evening you could do this you could deprive yourself a little bit of that you could push yourself to do this and that that's the easy part that's that's just the implementation and yes you have to be progressive and yes you, ha you have to be consistent but what's the drive if you don't have a drive it doesn't matter you won't stick to anything the drive is who do you choose to be? So you must first form a strong desire, a definite vision of who you choose to be in this world at every level, physically, mentally, emotionally, and as a person, who are you? Once you are clear about that, then you go after it. And that's when self-discipline comes into play because without self-discipline, it's just a dream. Oh, I want to be this, I want to be that. Everybody has dreams like that. About things they want to have, things they want to do, things they want to be. But dream, dreams, I mean, there's beauty in dreams, obviously, all right? At the same time, it's easy to be just a dreamer. And I prefer the idea of having a vision for oneself than you become a visionary for oneself. To be a visionary, it doesn't no. mean, oh, okay, I'm going to become a magnate, uh, uh, you know, uh, super famous, whatever, all these kind of things. It's just, that's not what it is. It doesn't matter what it is, in fact. It's whatever that is. You have to be clear about it. And obviously what we're seeking is satisfaction. What we're seeking is an experience of who we are. Because that's where we are. So if we're unsatisfied with the experience of who we are in this moment, so how do we change our experience, that experience of who we are? We have to be different and do different. So first is, in what way do you want to be different? Then you figure out in what ways do you need to do different. 
once you have that, then you you have self-discipline, then you can program things, then you can, whatever it is. But that's implementation. But it starts with that vision. Without that vision, it, it lacks relevance. And most importantly, it lacks, it's going to lack strength and fun and purpose. The drive, the drive, a desire. You need to have a desire. Desire is good when desire is healthy and it's clear. Then you have clear and healthy desires for yourself, and especially for who you want to be, what you want to experience. You go after it. That's what life is about. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. No, I think I think all that makes sense. Before Tristan chimes in here, um, I was just going to add that I think I think that is a really good point because without vision, without like having that self identity, um, which you know can evolve like throughout sure. life, but without ha- without having that, you you really you're sort of like throwing poop at a dartboard. And you're just seeing like where things stick. And I don't think a lot of people, and I, I have a lot of conversations with my brother who's a little bit younger than me, just graduated college, all the stuff I've mentioned on the podcast before. But we talk about like, oh, where we want to be in like five, 10 years. Or, like, what do you want to do for a living and all these things. And I don't think many people, including myself, um, more so now than in the past, uh, I have a vision. But um, for a long time, it's like, I don't think people are instilled with that idea of like, what is the vision you want to see for yourself? I think we'd grow up in, especially if you're in the United States, you grow up like with this uh, idea of like, oh, you can be whatever you want to be, blah, 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 all this stuff. But it's sort of like a facade. Uh, it's sort of like there's a invisible ink written of indoctrination happening of underneath that when we're going through the system. And really we're just at the end of the day, what, what the system wants is us to just be cogs in the machine of, of whatever. Um, and so I don't think there is a very clear vision for most people. So it's a really good question to pose to people. And I would pose that to the people listening to that right now is like, really think about like, what is your vision for yourself? Um, it's something that I think about a lot. It's scary. I think it's scary for a lot of people, right? Like you really have to take a deep, hard look in the mirror, say, who am I right now? And who do I want to be? And most people don't have the courage to do that. But then they're just living on these short term, you know, time frames of just getting to the next week, getting to the next month, they might have small goals along the way. But that long term vision, yeah, it's, it's not clear. So I, I completely resonate with that message. Erwin. I think it's so important because people really just lack the driving force of who they want to be and what they want to accomplish, like in life, not just like in the short term of uh, one year or six months. Like, yeah, I just want to lose weight for this wedding. It's like, no, like, no, like this is just like temporary. That's not really fueling the foundation of living the life you want to live and then getting that mindset in, in the right direction because that's the hardest part, but people are scared of, of self-evaluation. And that is okay. That is okay. You know, a lot of, it's normal. <laughs> a, a, a lot of people um, live that way, and, and that includes a lot of very cool people um, that are also that live a good life. It really, again, it depends on who do you choose to be. So uh, maybe, um, maybe that question is um, not too important for some people, or maybe they 
generally believe that who they are at the moment is a satisfying version of who they are. And that is okay. That is okay. Let's say if you're not happy with who you are, if you're not happy with the version of, of who you are and the version of you, how you live your life, the experience that you have, it's not satisfying, then that's when you really need to question. If it's unpleasant, if you're in a constant state of t- stress, if you have sadness, depression, if you have all of that, obviously you're not living a satisfying or pleasant life. That is certainly when the question should arise and not be dismissed. And yeah, um, there are obstacles in the way, but that is also the name of the game of what we call life, which is a spiritual experience. Is Are you going to be able to clear the fog? Are you going to be able to rise above that pressure, that, uh, that weight, that thickness? Just find clarity. Find find it and you gotta be seeking and seeking and seeking and never stop seeking you have to become a seeker and that may sound pretty philosophical okay um you know maybe uh, people would want to say just can you just give me a biohack a biohack just 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 tell me what to eat just tell me how i breathe better it's fine well that's the problem i think that's the problem but there are elements there are elements of the puzzle yeah yeah but 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 what I see is they're just looking for someone to tell them what to do. They're not really free thinking. Whereas you're talking about, you know, finding yourself, mindset, philosophy, like these are tools, these are parts of the puzzle for your own life. But I think the majority of people, a lot of, and they could be in the carnivore community, they could be in the Bitcoin community, they could be following Jack Cruz, they could be doing whatever. They're still just looking for someone to tell them what to do instead of taking that information and thinking, how does that apply to what they want to accomplish? And I I don't know. Is this just natural programming of society? Like 95% of people are always going to be like this and that's maybe how it should be. Or do we need to have more free thinking people? I'm curious what you think about that. (laughs) Oh, um, yeah, that is interesting. I um, it would never occur to me to go um, go ask anyone how to live or what's what's the truth in life. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. It could be like the 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 greatest whatever guru in front of me. I have zero question, zero question <laughs> for them, none. So you want to lead your own mind and your own life. Your own search, your own quest, your own find your own questions, find your own answers. But that's me. Now, yes, I understand some people um, want to ask questions or want to be given the answers. I like the questions. Uh, I like the answers too. Um, but um, there is a there is a value into doing your own investigation as opposed to just receiving uh, pre-made answers and programs and, you know, pre-digested truths and things like that, in my opinion. So it depends, you know, again, what's your mindset? (laughs) What's, what's a master? Yeah, definitely. Some people are followers. 
And some people are leaders. They are typically more followers than they are leaders. That's okay. That's okay. It can be a good place to be a follower. It all depends again. What is your satisfaction? Are you satisfied? Is it pleasant? Is it satisfying? Is it taking you where you want to be? Yes? Then good. No? Then change. Go find another teacher. Go find another guru. Go find another coach. Go find another book. Or just decide that you're going to be in charge and take over that responsibility and start your own investigation and to coach yourself and to you know find truth for yourself yeah and i was just going to add to that i think a lot of it or at least part of it has to do with removing the noise that we're constantly surrounded by i think like when it goes back to like having purpose in your decision making but i think i've i've found that even within myself like when i've kind of removed myself and looked at it, what I was doing from a 30,000 foot view in the past, I've, I've been making decisions kind of irrationally based on, on like a lot of fear um, or some sort of emotional impulse and not really thinking about, okay, what, what's, what, what do I really want the end result to be? Um, especially when you're dealing with people um, or myself when I was dealing with a lot of like, even now, like some like chronic health problems, it's like, it, sometimes you got to get out of the fear mindset and really think about okay what is my goal and is what i'm actually doing achieving my goal or am i reacting out of this emotional impulse um that's not actually going to solve the problem not to say that emotions like wrong or anything but i think i think there's just a lot of noise that people deal with when it comes to like thinking about these higher level ideas of purpose and, and meaning and vision um that cloud i think maybe what actually would bring them ultimate happiness and so it's sort of like sometimes it's good to sort of remove yourself yes. Um, yes. and look at the, at the big picture. But it's not always easy to do, but it's good to re- remind yourself of that because it's easy to get down rabbit holes of trying to find like what the A plus B equals C is when maybe it's not as simple always. Yes. Um, and I, I tell people this all the time that there's never necessarily a blueprint that exists. Sometimes you got to write the blueprint yourself. <laughs> yes. Yes. To be clear about what we're seeking is very important to begin with. Um, and it's easy to be lost in details such as what supplements should I, should I get and things like that. Um, not that it doesn't matter again. Not that it isn't good to receive instruction or knowledge, insight from people who know, from people who've been there. It's important. I mean, it's humans are meant to share and transmission of knowledge is very important. So uh, I, I never s- meant that learning from, from others um, is not a good way. Uh, let's say it's important to keep uh, a sense of, uh, of critique, a sense of self, not become something that you're not. Um, that is definitely important. Yes, the noise, the noise is always there. Um, the world, mankind, wants to pull you in every direction. Everybody's got their agenda. It wants you, want you to serve theirs. That is true. So to be, become very conscious of what is your personal agenda, that's extremely important. And to really be strong at defending that agenda and pursuing that agenda. But you have to be 
examining your agenda. If you have one, first you have one, then what is it? Examine it. What are the reasons why you are pursuing what you're pursuing? What's the, what's your value system? Do you have one? Do you operate from a value system? Those are very important questions. Um, if you're looking for programs, you will find countless of them. You may also find methods. You will find countless of them. But when you understand principles, and those principles are universal, then you can operate from these principles. So yeah, that's a very good point, Ryan, when you talk about, hey, what do, what emotion do I operate from? And you know when you operate from uncertainty, from insecurity, from fear, from anxiety, um, something you're gonna you're gonna be seeking something superficial, something that is not you, and it's never going to be satisfying. So to to find trust is important. Trust in oneself. This trust just. That's exactly what I was going to say. No, that's, that's perfect. I mean, it, and part of it too is like, and I'll let, I'll let Tristan jump in, but, uh, um, is, is that, uh, and I'm, I'm like having, I'm in the middle of this right now where it's like, I'm, there's certain decisions that, you know, sometimes you have to take a leap without knowing the end result, but you got to sort of make those adjustments along the way. Like there's sort of like, I think a lot of people operate myself included under the uncertainty principle and, and being afraid of, of taking the leap. So, well, well, okay. So uncertainty yeah. and, and insecurity are not the same. Oh, yeah. So uncertainty is part of life, as a matter of fact. Uh, but it's becoming comfortable yeah, with that. Right. Yeah, so we, we all are um, biological units of life. So the point is to stay alive first. Then ideally to thrive in that life, but first is to stay alive. This is why we have so many concerns and worries and anxiety and insecurities. It's because we are not only trying to regulate ourselves on a day-to-day basis to find comfort, we are also doing our best to regulate our life to find security, a sense of security. But there is all the unknown, and the unknown is always there. So that's uncertainty. That uncertainty never goes away. It's always in your face. Even when you, you're like, okay, I got this. This is all secure and all, and boom. No, it's not. So security, um, a sense of security, um, it stems from trust. And trust is a skill. Just like relaxation, just like patience, just like uh, a number of qualities of the human mind. There are skills that must be practiced. So whenever we realize, okay, I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about this, why am I thinking about this? Why why is it all so negative or so um, not satisfying or not clear well it's because i'm operating from a state of insecurity why because i don't have trust about something something i feel threatened about something anything how do you regain trust because if you don't operate from trust you don't operate good no way so all the time any energy of your mind of your body of your spirit that's involved in agitation that operates out of uncertainty 
unless if it's truly, truly, truly uh, justified and legit, like something really real is happening. But when it's not, and even when it is, by the way, trust still can be found. Anyways, so um, I, I teach this. I, I, I teach this. I'm, I'm saying this because I'm teaching this. The, the, those are not just ideas and insights. My ability to hold my breath a long time stems from that. I have to find and establish trust. And I have to magnify that trust if I want to have patience and relaxation so I can, I can hold my breath a very long time which that very long time of breath holding is not just a sport you are literally triggering a life threat at a physiological level of your autonomic nervous system because your cellular respiration is is um your ventilation is interrupted you're not you know there's no gas exchange but inside your cellular respiration never stops. so now your levels of co2 goes really high and your level of O2 starts to decline, including at some point challenging um, oxygenation of the brain. You bet that this is the one of the highest stress that you can expose yourself to. Um, how do you deal with that? Not just with willpower. It's a form, obviously, a form of threat. And only the mind is going to be able to overcome that threat to establish and maintain trust all the way. Now, with that trust, there is agitation. The opposite of trust is fear. And the, the opposite of relaxation is agitation. And the opposite of patience is impatience. The opposite of satisfaction is frustration, etc. So now you have, you know, that binary situation where it's either you're going to fuel what works against you or you're going to fuel the antidote. But the antidote is not given to you as a free medicine. You have to produce it from the, within the very core of your mind, the very core of who you are. It's a choice. You practice it. So what you can practice holding your breath is also what has to be practiced in life because it applies to any situation are you interested in 100 grass-fed grass-finished bison meat i'm excited to be a partner with falls family ranches based in wyoming falls family ranches is raising high quality bison meat the way nature intended as a native large ruminant of north america bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume if you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. Yeah, I think the trust thing is huge. I mean, I think that's why people outsource so many of their decisions. It's because they don't trust themselves. And whether that's because of, you know, lack of confidence, lack of just education and awareness and just being programmed, you know, like Ryan said, our whole lives were just kind of told to go to school, to get a job or to go to college, to get a job then get a job to just work and then retire comfortably 65, whatever the, the nightmarish scenario, right? So everyone's just outsourcing these decisions to the experts, to the government. And yeah, they don't trust themselves because they haven't done any of, you know, the, the work needed to put that in. But 
I think the breath work is huge. And I've talked about that with, with Ryan, some friends, it's like, you're really, yeah, overcoming that, but yeah, inherently trusting your, yourself to be safe. And I think that's a problem. So many people that are sick, they just have, you know, they're in this fight or flight response and they can't turn the switch off and they can't actually heal. doesn't matter how many supplements or what diet they take. You need to be able to control, you know, that, that response in your, in your nervous system. And it seems like this breath holding is might be the best or one of the best ways to, to naturally do that. So I'm curious, how did you, you know, how did you come to this? Obviously you were doing a lot of the move, you know, natural move nat for quite some time where you're doing a whole slew of, you know, very intense uh, triathlon, jujitsu, I think weightlifting, sailing, all these things, which are so awesome. But then how did it turn into just like really fixating on, on, on breath work? In breath work. And, and in fact, uh, I mostly do breath hold work, which is no, no oh, breath yeah. work. You don't work on your breath. You work on not breathing. Lack of breathing. <laughs> yes. Um, it started a few years ago, about three years ago, um, because I was all already doing breath hold work underwater um, spearfishing. And not that I, ha- I had already practiced spearfishing before. I had already practiced breath holding before, as a matter of fact. Even when I was a kid, I was doing it sometimes. And um, I've learned breathing control when I was seven through my clarinet teacher. So I've never done any yoga, no pranayama, nothing like that. It's I've learned breath control, diaphragmatic control, regulation of the breath through the practice of an instrument, a wind instrument, clarinet. That was for three years. My grandpa told me about when he was practicing um, breath holding in a bucket. My grandpa was born in 1914, so he's not with us anymore. But the, the reason I believe he did that is because he grew up so dirt poor that he had like malnutrition um, back then, you know, and... Uh, and uh, he developed uh, chronic bronchitis and he had like some trouble breathing. So I think that the, he probably put his head in a, in a, in a, a cold bucket of water and that probably made him feel good. Anyways, I remember he mentioned that once. Um, my dad was a heavy smoker. So he... He would love to hike, but uh, he obviously he was always coughing, and you know his lungs were 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 bothering him. Um, those are like all details, little things, but you see, everything plays a role. Um, when I was a kid, I remember sometimes suffocating at night because I had my face buried in the pillow and I couldn't breathe, and I breathe. That was scary. And I had to force myself to wake up. And I remember those times where I was trying to move out of the position, but I felt so, I was so deeply asleep that I felt completely numb and unable to move. And those were both, you know, semi conscious, semi unconscious times of, of complete fear of asphyxiation. Because the fear of suffocation is real. It's one of the most primal fears one could ever have. Is I can't breathe. I'm going to die. 
you know, whoever has had like a, older siblings have had them, you know, um, put a pillow on their face and prevent them from breathing or being in a swimming pool and they put your head in the water and you get scared and the parent gets mad and things like that. So I've been through all of that, you know, uh, I almost drowned one in a swimming pool just because I panicked um, and it was too deep for me anyways. So with all that being said, so I believe that I developed a an interest in overcoming that fear. I've always been interested in overcoming fears um, and overcoming weaknesses too. So when I start to, at the same time, I've always loved to hold my breath and dive and swim. And I often had dreams about being underwater and magically not having to breathe and being like, this is amazing. I don't need to breathe. Those were fantastic dreams to me. So, um, I I am in Mexico. I'm spearfishing almost every day. Love to eat fish. Love to catch fish. And, and then, how do you kill fish? Curiosity kills fish. They, they know you're there. They go away and then they come back because like there's something there. And they get closer and then poof, you spear them. So the longer you can stay, it's called the bottom time. The longer your bottom time, statistically, the better chances you have to get more fish or bigger fish, the kind of fish you want. I started to train outside uh, on land, holding my breath, walking on the beach for as long as I could. Um, and then um, back in the days, I had also interest in free diving. I had even uh, met one of the the world record holder back then for uh, the no limit diving really really deep. Um, I started to look into their the methods, and I realized, oh, okay, um, there is a basic method there. It's called a CO two table. So you hold your breath a certain amount of time. And then you recover, and then the recovery time is less and less and less and less. So it's very basic. It doesn't teach you how to handle the mindset. It doesn't teach you anything. It just tells you how to structure time. So I structure time, my breathful time that way. And within a month, I was from 4 minutes to 5.30. Within two months, I was at like close to 6.30. And within four months, I achieved seven minutes. But it triggered a, a crazy interest in the mental part of this because I very quickly realized that without the proper mindset, there's no way you, you can achieve much. It's not just physiological. And in fact, I realized that it was mostly not physiological, which explains now when I teach uh, breathful work to my students, they make incredibly fast progress like within four four weeks um doing only two sessions a week they triple quadruple their breathful time this is not because of physiological adaptation only very partly so it has everything to do with uh, the mindset and the regulation of the autonomic nervous system and so it became my passion and then i've 
I've started to study every aspect of it from physiology, psychology, perception of time, hypnosis, self-hypnosis, things like that. So talking about like breathing, I mean, there's a lot of people do talk about breath work. Um, I don't know how many of them understand maybe the, the, the entire, all the nuances of it. I certainly don't, but, um, I sort of wanted to get your thoughts. I know you're, you're sort of the, we've been talking a lot about, about holding breath, less about breathing. Um, but I, I love to get your thoughts on sort of like Wim Hof and his method. Um, cause it seems I don't know. I I just love your thoughts on on that that versus sort of like maybe your philosophy. You know, you knew this was coming. The, the you know it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> In general, the holotropic breath community. What what do I think about it? Okay, so I'm going to extract from that the one element that is the most um, known, which is hyperventilation, breathing hard, typically done through the open mouth. <gasps> like that super fast okay i never use that i never do it i never teach it all the my friends who are uh free diving world champions or world recall holders never use that hyperventilation so what does that say to begin with i mean these guys are experts in holding their breath either statically or dynamically going on a horizontal distance, maximum horizontal distance, or at depth. They never hyperventilate. Why? Because they don't need it. And because it's dangerous and counterproductive. That's why. Okay, so if you're asking me, why do I think about um, the Wim Hof method? So first off, what method are we talking about? We're talking about the cold exposure or are we talking about the the hyperventilation, breath holding part? More the, more okay. the breathing. The All breathing. Right. So stuff, the breathing yeah. stuff is in fact one single exercise. Yes, one single exercise. It's a one size fits all exercise. Everybody does the same exercise. There's one exercise. So I don't call that. I don't call a single exercise a method. Then it's a, it's a, it's an exercise that is based on hyperventilation. It means in order to improve your whole breath holding time, you must do the hyperventilation. You want to know that it's a cheap old trick. It's an old trick and it's a cheap trick. Maybe back in the day, some, um, some uh, spearfishing people would do it and probably would kill themselves because of it. So they're not doing it. In the famous movie, uh, The Big Blue, you see the, the Japanese athlete that's trying to, to dive. He does that big hyperventilation. And the funny part is that be, before he even dives, he passes out. So why is that? <laughs> that's because of hyperventilation. So hyperventilation does not superoxygenate the body. That's a complete myth. It, in fact, it's the opposite. So you want to understand a bit of physiology, basic physiology to understand why. When you breathe hard, you're going to inhale and exhale much more air. The volume of air you're going to 
that goes that is going to go in and out of your lungs is of course going to be dramatically high. So you may be thinking, oh, wow, well this way I get a lot of oxygen in my body. Now to understand why that is not the case, what it is the case but not the case, you have to understand the paradox and the paradox is explained when you understand the difference between oxygen intake and oxygen uptake. Oxygen intake is how much oxygen is going to circulate in your bloodstream. So obviously, the faster you breathe, the more oxygen circulates. It goes in and goes out, it goes in and goes out. The percentage of oxygen in your bloodstream does not elevate. It's always between 95 and 99%. You cannot improve the percentage or increase the percentage of oxygen circulating in your bloodstream by breathing faster and harder, okay? You can only in increase how much oxygen overall circulates in your bloodstream in a given time period, and that's going to increase. Now, that's the intake. The intake goes up. But doesn't mean that your metabolism is going to all of a sudden uptake more oxygen in the absence of a need for it? Absolutely not. It won't. Why? Because at rest you have a metabolic you know, basal rate that makes you use a certain amount of oxygen and not more than you need. So breathing more is not going to make you need more oxygen. So that oxygen is inhaled and then it's exhaled. It's basically completely useless. But there is something beyond that. It's not only you're breathing more oxygen that you can possibly use, but then you will start to actually deoxygenate your body, not super oxygenate it. And that's because of the Bohr effect. And to understand why this is happening, you have to understand a bit of, uh, uh, you know, basic biochemistry. And I'm not a scientist or an expert. It's just some basic, basic understanding that everybody should have, basically. Which is that every tissue in our body has a specific pH. It's slightly different. It's about the same, it's slightly different. The blood has a certain pH, the, the liver has a certain pH, the brain has a certain pH. That pH is regulated by levels of carbon dioxide. To, for the oxygen to be delivered properly to your cells, the pH of your tissues must be optimum. So it has to be regulated perfectly. And breath regulates that pH. When you're going to breathe hard, not only you're going to inhale way more oxygen than you can possibly use, so you don't need that oxygen. But every exhale is not neutral. Your exhales are not neutral. Your exhales, you're going to exhale CO2. You're going to flush out CO2 that you do need. What's the reason why um, it is a cheap trick to do that when you're going to hold your breath is because you're going to decrease the level of CO2 you have in your body. When you hold your breath, the one thing that's going to bother you first is the elevation of CO2 in your bloodstream. It's called blood acidosis. It, it's like an acid, so it burns you from inside. You know, it's not exactly the same as lactic acid, but you know, when you exercise and you feel the burn in your muscles and you feel the burn in your lungs, and basically, it's all 
it's the metabolic waste from the effort and you need to exhale to flush it out now that's and you are hyperventilation you're like running you're running you're breathing hard you're uh, on a bicycle or swimming you're breathing hard that's natural healthy hyperventilation that has a purpose of regulating your ph but when you're sitting on your butt and you're doing nothing else but breathing hard and you flush out all this co2 now your ph the ph of your tissues changes including the ph of your brain it creates vasoconstriction you have less cerebral cerebral blood flow so you have less oxygen going to your brain and at the tissue level, because the pH is off, when oxygen molecules show up, they cannot be delivered by the bloodstream. They cannot be delivered by the hemoglobin. Why? Because the Bohr effect makes it that it, the, bond, the bond between the, um, the hemoglobin and the oxygen molecules that they carry is much stronger. So it shows up at the door, the door of a cell, a cell that's starving with oxygen, but because the pH is not right, it cannot deliver that oxygen. So you basically are deoxygenated. Your uptake of oxygen goes down as your intake of oxygen goes up. You breathe too hard, oxygen in- intake goes up, oxygen uptake goes down. And this is why, even if you don't hold your breath, but you just breathe hard like that for a long time, you start feeling dizzy. You start fainting. You start f- having all the exact symptoms of hypoxia. Hypoxia like tingling fingers, a metallic, uh, maybe metallic taste in the mouth, uh, dizziness, tunnel vision, all kind of things. This is not because you're having a mystical experience. This is not because, oh, you are now producing natural DMT in your brain. That is complete baloney. Absolute bullshit. That's just because your brain is deoxygenated. And when your brain is deoxygenated, maybe you're going to have like some dreamlike vision. You're going to have a high. You know why? Because you don't have enough oxygen going to your prefrontal cortex that handles your day-to-day consciousness. So when you start to have deficiency of oxygen in the prefrontal cortex, the brain has to regulate itself in thinking. Not that it actually thinks about it, but... It's like, okay, we need to, we don't have enough oxygen supply anymore. So we need to be using it in, you know, deeper areas of the brain, like the limbic brain, the part of the brain that's responsible for other layers of cognition, including the, the dream world and things like that. So anyways, that's why people like to do that because they're having a high. All of a sudden, they don't have all that oxygen in their brain. And they cannot think the way they normally do. And it's blissful. You know why? Because most people, when they think the way they normally do, they think too much. They they overthink. They're thinking all the time and thinking about all kind of stressful things and threats and concerns and things that bothers them, frustrates them and annoys them. So when all of a sudden they hyperventilate and they're like, whoa, and they're like, oh my God, hallelujah, I feel better. That's why they're doing it. Is it is it helpful? Well, maybe that makes you feel good, but there are other ways to downregulate, to to clarify and simplify and your mind and make it more positive. Yeah, I think I I used to occasionally do Wim Hof, and to me, it just never felt like I was gaining anything. It was just like 
the only way like I would hold my breath longer if I just like hyperventilated longer and I, I didn't really feel like any drastic difference outside of that so I didn't really do it too often but to me the dizziness and everything was strange um, I didn't think that was like necessary and it just seems to be now it's like you're just driving up your sympathetic nervous system yes. to a point for like no benefit when we need to be kind of controlling that instead of ramping it up i i think so the part that's the part two is that most people are in what's called a sympathetic dominance it means their autonomic nervous system is in is in a constant state of stress which is what the constant state of insecurity of feeling threatened you feel threatened by life you feel threatened by everything in your life you cannot find the switch off to calm down and to relax again trust is the opposite of fear Anxiety is just another word for fear. Concerns, um, all of that. It's just fear. Fear is when you are in the presence of threat, that it is legit threat or imaginary threat, something that you imagine is a concern, is going to be a problem to you, regardless of the magnitude of it. That is a petty thing or it is a very important thing. That is real that is not real that it is likely or not likely. It doesn't matter. As long as your cognition, your consciousness, believes that there is the presence of a threat, it cannot relax. So when this becomes chronic, you are in that sympathetic dominance. When you are going to breathe very hard, typically, why is that? Either because you're exercising, you're moving, there's a physical effort, then that's natural, but it's typically temporary, or because there's a stress. When do you think uh, you are breathing slowly? When you're relaxed, when you, when you are taking a nap, when you're chilling, when all is good, when you just had a massage, when you're cuddling, when you're being cuddled, being soothed, whatever it is. It makes you feel good and trust, then your autonomic nervous system feels secure. Breathing goes down, breathing goes slow, all is good. The opposite is also true. So when you're stressed out, when there's danger, you breathe fast. So when you hyperventilate, consciously you know that you're hyperventilating because you expect a certain benefit from it. That's what your conscious mind knows. But your autonomic nervous system doesn't know that. Your autonomic nervous system, which is another part of your brain, another part of your cognition, another part of who you are, interprets fast breathing as the presence of a threat. Why? Because typically, when there's a danger, what do you need to do? It's to create a distance with the danger, a physical distance with the danger. How do you do that? through agitation, through movement. What is movement? An agitation. That agitation starts with the nervous system agitating, the breath agitating, and then the body, the muscles agitating. And then you're in motion, and then hopefully you defend yourself or you, you know, against the danger or you move away from it. So when, for no reason, you're hyperventilating, you're indicating, you're telling your nervous system, I'm under threat. Is that a good thing? 
certainly not a good thing, especially when you are already chronically in that state. So why would that be a... Then you're going to tell me, what about all the people who have benefited from that exercise? Okay, so number one, I'm going to tell you, what about all the people who have not benefited from the exercise? And what about all the people who got injured by the exercise? As in ringing tinnitus, no, ringing ears as tinnitus. Um, um, other areas of your... Basically, they have sometimes wrecked their autonomic nervous system by doing that. That's not all the people. That's not the majority of people. There is a number of people who have had such issues. People who before were perfectly, you know, had no problem. And now they have a problem. So they are dangerous to that exercise. But it's not just the hyperventilation, by the way. Even though the hyperventilation in itself is good. Uh, I mean, good is um, the hyperventilation in itself is can create it can be good at creating the problem. The it's the hypoxia. The hypoxia can happen even without the breath holding. It it happens because what I've just explained the deoxygenation of the cells, including brain cells if you really push that hyperventilation. So that alone, you may have a healthy response to this and you may have not a healthy response to this. So the, when you hold your breath, you're going to, after hyperventilation, the trigger for the urge to breathe is delayed because you've, you've decreased the levels of CO2 that you have in your body. Then you hold your breath, then there's a buildup of CO2, then back to normal, then excess CO2 in your body, that's when the urge to breathe occurs. But because you flushed a, a, a big amount of CO2, you can hold your breath longer. But then hypoxia is going to happen. And that's hypoxia you're not ready for. Because you haven't earned it. A hypoxia can be beneficial if it's done proper. But if you are going to get straight away into hypoxia, including cerebral, it's a mild level of cerebral hypoxia because you do that hyperventilation before and your physiology is not ready. Uh, your, the brain is not ready to handle that. Your autonomic nervous system is not ready to handle that. Do you think the response is going to be positive? No. So in some people that are healthy enough, they're going to have the benefits because they're going to reach hypoxia, certain level of, in a mild cerebral hypoxia. And that is going to be beneficial to them. And to others, it's going to be detrimental to them. So there's a way to benefit from that hypoxic practice that is safe. And the only way to make it safe is to completely avoid any hyperventilation. So that if you do at some point reach certain level of hypoxia, which is typically... In fact, it's more hypoxemia. It's like a lower level of oxygen in your blood flow, like below 90%. That's when the benefit starts to be there if you do a few repetitions, like five repetitions in a row. Um, you, you will benefit without exact same benefits without any of the, the problems, any of the risks. Because you earn it, because it's progressive, because it's done in a way that your autonomic nervous system can't understand. 
or can can accept and it's sustainable and it's safe. When you hyperventilate, you indicate big stress. Then you go into hypoxemia and mild hypoxia that you're not prepared for. And that's when the danger zone is. That's when the detriment can be there like easily. And that's why some people, a lot of people never, they never stick to that exercise because it doesn't make them feel good if it doesn't injure them. So lucky those who benefit, but that's not everyone. Yeah, I think I, I think I read like James Nestor's book and he kind of opened my mind about like CO2 tolerance versus kind of just flushing it out. So that was why I stopped doing Wim Hof. And, you know, I, there are other ways, like you're saying, to get hypoxic. I mean, you're at Santa Fe, 7,000 feet. I'm here in Colorado at 8,000 feet above sea level, go hiking, um, or you can just practice breath holds. So I think it's important because, you know, Wim Hof, credit to him. I think he's bringing attention to cold and breath. I don't think he understands the mechanism super well. So this is, you know, just something he stumbled upon and whatever. Now more people are aware of it, but I really appreciate you diving into that because it's, uh, I think that is extremely important. So I know, I know we're at time here, Erwin. Uh, how can people find you? How can people find your, you know, your, your training sessions, your, your educational retreats you do? And all that, yeah. For um, for breath breathing, and because I do teach breathing or breath work, um, but then also breath holding as a meditation because it's about regulating the mind more than just looking at a physiological benefit. Even though there are plenty of physiological benefits, it's a healthy thing to do. And most importantly, it's about it's the healthy thing to do for your autonomic nervous system, for your nervous system, for your mind. So I call this method breath hold work and breath hold work meditation. It can be found on breathholdwork.com. Just like breath work, you put a hold in it in between the breath and the work. Awesome. And on social media, you're kind of just your full name on Instagram and Twitter, right? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, there's yeah, just around the core on uh, Instagram or on Twitter. And then, of course, there's also my original method, which is movenat.com, M-O-V-N-A-T.com, M-O-V-N-A-T.com. And it's a school of physical education based on natural movements. All the skills that we used to practice instinctively as kids and, of course, our ancestors or firefighters, everyone who is in a real-life situation has to do those movements, which are jumping, running, um climbing, lifting, carrying, all these movements, but we teach people how to do that with efficiency. It's like a martial art of real-world physical movement. That's really cool. I think with the, you know, most people just going to the gym, lifting very statically, I think that's something that a lot of people could could benefit from, more functional movements. Yeah. So, well, I appreciate your time. Uh, I think this is a really cool episode, Mindset you know, breath hold nuances and, and breath work is really important. And uh, yeah, thanks everybody for tuning in another episode of Decentralized Radio. We'll see you next time. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. That was wonderful. Mm-hmm.